Would you bet a few thousand dollars that you could sink an eight-foot putt? What about 10 grand that you could win a drag race against a Camaro with a thousand horsepower? If you bet $2 million, could you bet it all on one football game? Maybe you wish you could, but you probably wouldn't. Gamblers is about the people who did. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network comes Gamblers Season 2. Listen now. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. April showers bring a loaded sports calendar, and FanDuel is the place to bet on it all. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and get paid instantly when you win. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, the play-by-play voice of the 22-7 and Boston Celtics. It is Sean Grandy. Sean, how are you? Um, I'm good. So I'm, my play-by-play title changes no matter what the record is because I had some years then. Because that makes me sound like I'm I'm bad at it. He's <laughs> well, the voice like... of the, the, 2000, <laughs> the 2007 18-game losing streak Celtics. Yeah, that's true. But hey. It makes it easier, right? Now that the team's like good, you got to come up with. St- well, I guess not because you got a lot of blowouts this year, so you got to come up with stuff, right? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's. I never really thought of it. It's certainly easier as far as making the story compelling. It's harder to come up with the storyline for a game when you're twenty-two and forty and you're playing another bad team. There's always a, there's always a story in every game. If there isn't, I'm not doing my job. There's a million stories. There's guys playing in the NBA who have great stories. You're just telling it. It's everything is in a different. The last 20 years in Boston, virtually everything is told under a different microscope. We talked about this before. From the time I came back here, and they wanted to have a parade for the team that went to the conference finals, <laughs> to 20 years later when the team got spit on for getting for losing in the conference finals, and that's the difference between Dave Roberts stealing that base by an inch. Everything you know for that. And, you know, Tom Brady taking a nap for the Super Bowl, everything changed from those moments on, and it changed the standard around here. So the standard by which you're telling the story is, I literally, I joke, you'll appreciate this, right? I, I joked last week, before the Golden State game, nobody, there was so nothing to complain about, so literally nothing to complain about. People were saying, well, Bobo is having this really good year in Orlando. We have, I'm like, okay, all of that is true. That Are we going to talk about by the guy – like wanted to ask me about Bobo. I'm like, they're 21 and five. They're the best team in the league by a wide margin. They've been the best team in the league for a year, the best offense in the history of offenses. And we're talking about Bobo. Like, really? That's what it's become. 
Yeah, every once in a while. But hey, by the way, so you mentioned Roberts there, and it reminded me that the last time we talked, you had just watched a Red Sox game, and it may have been the game where Cora took Bogarts out early. So I'm wondering, yeah. as a season ticket holder now for the Red Sox, how you doing, man? I mean, Bogarts that, is gone. I got the email from the uh, from the rep, from the season ticket rep. Hey, Sean, oh. just checking in. We have, you know, we have just making sure we got, um, and you know, we're gonna. I'll announce here formally we'll be taking our talents back to Fenway for 2023 and we'll be renewing as season ticket <laughs> last year was my first year. I should have put the hat on, right? Like it was, and this is, you know, my son, again, he's 11. He's had a different previous generations of Boston fans who had kids who were 11. You were used to their heartbreak came from unimaginable losses and letdowns and inevitable heartbreak. His come from the fact that the players on his team, his jersey is a Xander Bogart's jersey, right? And how do you prepare for that? How do you prepare for, you know, like when I got to drive to school, he's a Mets fan too. Younger kids now, they have a lot of different teams and they follow the league more closely. But he's a Mets fan because I grew up a Mets fan in New York. So I had to tell him about DeGrom. He sort of knew that was coming. But here's how the generations change. And here's a dead honest true story. My son's favorite player when he was five, as every five-year-old in Massachusetts, their favorite player was Isaiah Thomas in 2017. And he, I've got videos of him looking at the box scores when Isaiah would have those. I'd hand him the box score, and he'd wake up in the morning. He's five years old, and his eyes would go across. And his little eyes would pop out of his head when he saw 52, 53 points. He'd lose his mind. So as the summer of 2017 is going on, I have a hunch as to what may be happening here. And so I'm dreading this day i'm gonna to have to tell my son either on you know facetime you know if he's with his mother or home that isaiah thomas is no longer so, so the day happens and it finally happens and he's with his mother and we facetime and i said buddy uh you know i think we, we talked about this for a while right with isaiah and he goes did he get traded and i said yeah buddy yeah he did and he stopped for a second and he goes to who i said to cleveland and he paused for a second he goes did we get that really good player back and I said, you mean Kyrie Irving? And he, go, he goes, yeah. I said, yeah, we did. And he goes, okay. I was like, that's cold, man. That's, <laughs> that's, that's wrong on so many levels. I'm still not over, like, when I was five, like, Tom Seaver got traded. I'm still not over it. But he's he was fine. In the moment, he's like, just like, just like every other Celtic fan, right, got real cold on Isaiah when all of a sudden we got the runway model and Kyrie Irving is coming and all of a sudden we're we're dating the runway model. Oh, yeah, I heard some stuff. I heard some bad stuff. But what do we say? That's not going to happen with me. Not yeah. That may have happened with the other guys. She was with, but I don't know. It's going to work out here with us. And the Isaiah Thomas thing, man, that was just so fun. Like, obviously, the Celtics have had much better teams. They won in 08, 2010. They're back to the finals. They made it to the finals last year. But that was just such a unique story. This guy is like five foot nine. And he's out playing John Wall and Bradley Beal. In the postseason, that I never thought like when they traded for Isaiah Thomas, I thought, oh, OK, this is a nice pick. And that year, correct me if I'm wrong, Sean, they were bringing him off the bench for most of the season. Then he goes into the starting lineup. The next year, he turns into an all NBA performer like that's like one of the most ultimate Cinderella stories. Like nobody would have ever predicted that as a guy, a second round pick from Washington. I've never seen in the years I've been doing this and just watching, you know, the years of being alive. How many times can you find a player and a team? and a symbiotic relationship that the player needed the team, that team, and that team needed that player. 
more than Isaiah Thomas fitting in. The one, you know, Brad Stevens could MacGyver a hundred things with those Celtics teams in the early years, but they didn't have anybody who could score when they needed scoring. And again, they MacGyvered the defense around him. And here's mm-hmm. the kind of the forgotten part of history is the Celtics were 10th in the NBA in defense in 2017 with Isaiah Thomas. After the trade was made, they were the best defensive team after that, which gives you an indication of how Isaiah played. He played hard. He gave you everything he could. But look, at and now what a product of that time was Isaiah. Because look at now, Kemba Walker could – Kemba could barely get run. It took how many guys getting hurt before Kemba could get back in the league because yeah. being – forget being 5'9 or 5'10, being 6'1 is like you can barely do that anymore with everything being a 6'7 interchangeable defensive wing – three-point shooting league that's just five years ago yeah and brad was so good with him because i remember all the pre-switching and the players are good around him too because isaiah would just like run to the corner when the screen would come up brad was so creative with that and isaiah to his credit he executed and really the players around him executed and you needed to do it because he was just so good offensively all right sean so let's get to this team because we have you on on the perfect night because tomorrow robert williams it's been reported by sham sharani is going to make his season debut after coming off the knee surgery against Bobo against Bobo. I mean, yeah, this is, this, this, there you go. Now it's on. <laughs> this is the showdown. So I told you there's a story and everyone I tell you, there's a story. You're right. You got it. Bobo versus Robert Williams. Who would you yeah. rather have? But just looking at, <laughs> looking at Rob, I assume he's on some sort of a minutes limit, obviously, but what do you expect for the first couple of weeks, getting him back? You think they're just trying to get him back into shape or when do you uh, think we see the real Robert Williams? Yeah, I think inevitably there'll be the inevitable when there's a letdown, the Celtics lose the game, or Rob is, you know, working his way back here. There's going to be the inevitable, oh my God, it was better before they had Robert Williams back. I mean, patience is not a strong suit, you know, in this part of the world or in many parts of the world. But, you know, in theory, it's going to take some time. But you got to, the Celtics are not the Celtics without the true, healthy Rob Williams. And here's what I've always said about that Rob Williams was not the MVP of last year's team. However, if you want to oversimplify and divide last season into three parts, the under 500 part through January with the frustrating close losses, and you could see some of it, but they just weren't executing. They weren't winning games, the isolation ball. We forget how many players were on last. This isn't five years ago. Last year's team had Dennis Schroeder and Juancho Hernan Gomez playing, you know, Bo Cruz playing big minutes on this team <laughs> last year, last year, a year ago at mid season. So, that's how quickly this thing all happened last year. But let's take that part of the season, then take the nine weeks that followed. The Celtics were not only the best team, they were the dumb, one of the best teams ever. They were beating teams by 15 a game. The, I'm not sure who the second best team in the NBA was, but it wasn't close in that time. And then they go from 11th in the East to first, and they take over in that Sunday night game, and they beat Minnesota, and that's the game where Rob gets hurt. From that point on, for the three months that followed, the Celtics were good. They were really good and obviously elite and had a chance to win the championship. But they were never the dominant team that they were before Rob got hurt. So the key to the Celtics being that dominant team, to me, is a healthy Rob Williams. And now you know if something does go wrong with anybody, the Celtics without Rob Williams have the chance to be the best team in the league because they have been at this point. Yeah, no doubt. And one of the things, too, is when he finally got close to himself in the finals, you look at, to your point, like he's not the best player, but think about the difference he made. His box score plus minus was a plus 30 in a series that they lost in six games. It's just he spooked the Warriors. He's the one guy that spooked the Warriors when they were going to the basket. He did it time after time again. And the other thing in terms of 
I understand like the offensive thing. It, it will happen because they play so many five out lineups, even with Horford in there. But the one thing that Rob brings that nobody else brings is that vertical spacing, right? Where Tatum's talked about it before, how much he likes playing with Rob, because how do you defend now a Tatum pick and roll with Rob Williams? Are you doubling Tatum? Okay, well, then he's going to throw a lob. If you don't double Tatum, then Tatum's walking into a jump shot. It just becomes another dangerous element to this offense that, quite frankly, they haven't had. Oversimplify it and do this. Let's say there's three easy Rob Williams baskets a game that you didn't have as part of your offense before. That's six, and there's no fouls. That's six points. Anybody that follows the league fairly closely, and you do all the crazy work with numbers, I'm up till three in the morning trying to find any that are relevant to you know further any discussion, because I like them when they pertain to discussion like we're having right now. Six points a game is the difference. That's 20 wins of difference in the course of a season. That's the difference between a good team and one of the best teams ever, six points a game, if you can get those easy, easy baskets. And the Celtics, Rob isn't the same physical presence that Zubats is or Embiid or Anthony Davis. But look at the fact that the Celtics have seen these teams recently. And even Anthony Davis is going to get four or five easy baskets. If you're going to defend, you're going to play five out, you're going to defend against teams the way they play now, Joel Embiid is going to get his paint touches. Davis is going to get his paint touches. And you almost concede, to defend the three-point line, you're going to concede some of those buckets in the course of a game. So how many did the Celtics not have during this last stretch, we not only did that did not have Rob, but didn't have Al. And here's poor Blake Griffin, who's gone above and beyond anything you could ever hope for to this point, particularly off the court. It's been a dream scenario to have. He's the, been the perfect veteran for this team. And all of a sudden, you're, Al's not even playing back-to-backs. And you're asking Blake Griffin to start yeah. on back-to-back nights against Zubac and Anthony Davis? I mean, that that wasn't in the uh, Brad Stevens brochure, I think, when he when he laid this out, club med vacation out for for, uh, you know, Blake at the start of the year. Yeah, and that's the thing, too, with Al being out those five games. Their offensive rating during that stretch dropped to 24th, and prior, obviously, they were first. And they didn't really have that five-out big anymore. Like, Cornette, they're actually playing him, it feels like, more like the Rob role. And, of course, Blake Griffin, they try to play five-out with him. He really can't because they don't respect him as a shooter. But the Blake thing, the one-day-a-week uh, the one day a week Blake was perfect. Like, just trot him out there. And it felt starter, like- man, the fifth starter. That was unbelievable. So, what did you hear about that? Did they just, was this something they came up with on the fly or this was the plan before the season? Like, hey, we're resting Al on back to back. So those are the nights that Blake is going to play because it really was like an NFL player for the first like month of the season where he was playing once a week. Sure. Well, at the start of the year, remember you were going to have, you had, you were going to have Rob and Grant. So you were mm-hmm. okay. But then when you didn't have, you didn't have Rob and some nights aren't ideal for Grant to start. And then I think it's just one of those, you know, necessity being a mother. Right. And you got to figure it out. Blake ended up being perfect for that. Man, he was just giving the ball for that that fifth starter, still throwing junk after, after you know, the first four starters are throwing 95 miles an hour. And it, it was perfect. But again, when Tim Wakefield was, if Tim Wakefield started every day, they would start hitting. Yeah, that's a good point. So speaking of that, speaking of the road trip, we mentioned that before you got on, but the Lakers game. So that was one of the craziest games I think I've ever seen. But Tatum, he just went nuts down the stretch. I'm looking at it. He tried the dunk on LeBron, got fouled, got to the line for two free throws. The step back three, he had the fadeaway over LeBron to tie the game. Now, obviously, look, the Lakers should have ended the game with Anthony Davis, two free throws at the end, but he missed them. But Tatum had been struggling a little bit for his standards in December, right? He was shooting less than 40% from the field, 22 points, nine rebounds. Everybody else would take that. But this is Jason Tatum. It did feel like 
that was sort of a moment for him. He's had so many of them, like the 46 points against Milwaukee. You think back a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, he was great against LeBron. And then the next night against the Clippers, or I may have that in reverse order. But this on TNT, when his team was down, it just felt like this is another one of those moments of like, you know what, right now I'm the superior wing player to you, LeBron. Well, he has big, he's always had big game DNA, which goes back to, you know, the game seven rookie year dunk on LeBron. So yeah. he never shied away from them at 19, 20 years old. He wasn't shying away from them, but obviously he's grown into it. He knows he has to be elite. I think the difference, and Jason, listen, if you take the number of shots he takes and you take the difficult shots that he takes, I don't think you're going to see similar shooting numbers. He's going to be in the middle of the pack, three-point-wise. He's not going to shoot 44% from three because of the kind of difficult shots he's taken. To me, the drop-off when the Celtics became – an ordinary team for those two games, it's made you realize the reason that Jason Tatum is the MVP of the league right now. Because, listen, you can make a case. Joel Embiid, Kevin Durant, obviously Giannis is a special dude in every way. Luka in particular. Offensively, you match them up with Tatum, and they absolutely line up. But go to the other end of the floor. None of them are coming close to impacting the game defensively, including Anthony Davis, including Embiid, the way that Tatum is impacting the game defensively. And he wasn't in the two games, you know, the Golden State game, particularly the Clipper game, which is you really to, – to nitpick at Tatum now, where he is as arguably the best player in the world, certainly one of the top five, you really have to go very far to find something that he hasn't developed to elite level. But one the other night that reared its head was him getting the early foul and then not defending anymore at the level he needs to defend because he was not only didn't want to pick up the second foul, which is smart, but you have to have the internal clock he played that way into the third quarter, and he still only had the one foul. And there comes that moment where, okay, it's okay to get the second foul now. It's okay to get the third foul now. And that's just, again, the, the lengths you have to go. It's like the bowl bowl thing. The lengths you have to go to find something to nitpick about Jason Tatum. But that, I thought, reared its head a little bit. And I think that got to what they were talking about, going back to the Marcus Morris thing from 2019, that this isn't fun. We're not having any fun. It's a couple of games. But – you know, I know I listen, I get the Golden State game was a psychological blow, particularly to fans. Players mm-hmm. move on. You know, when the email thing happens, fans are overwhelmed by it, whatever. The players got to practice the first day, and then okay, now we're practicing. But they move on to the next thing. And we don't because we're not trained, we're not trained to do that. But the Golden State thing matters, and it'll be a thing over their head until Golden State comes here the next few weeks that they'll always be the people, no matter what they do, if they win the next 20. And they're forty-one and seven, or whatever. People, oh, what about Golden State? They have, okay, you know, uh, I'm not really overly convinced Golden State's going to be in the finals this year, but maybe that's just me. Uh, I get it; these are all things that happen, but we get so caught up in real time, we don't understand. And I know it's hard to appreciate how historically, absurdly good slash dominant this team has been for eleven months now you got to have a little more fun in show business because there are 29 of the teams looking up at them over the last year, the exception of Golden State for those three games in the finals, and I get it. It's the thing about when invariably we get to the playoffs, and I will tweet, over the last 15 years, no team has played more playoff games or won more playoff games than the Celtics. So that is automatic. If I had an $8 check mark for every time somebody tweeted, but they only won one championship – Yes, they, they plummet from first to fourth in championships in the last 15 years. But if you're not, what are you doing in any professional sport? You're trying to get around it so that you can have that year where everything falls right. And, yeah, you get Kawhi. Toronto won a championship. Toronto won a championship because Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson got hurt 
in the finals. You put yourself there and you roll the dice and you got you got to be lucky and good. And the Celtics have done the good part. And that's the part that 26, 27 other teams haven't been able to do. Yeah, get as many bites at the apple as you possibly can. And you bring up a great point about Tatum, too, because, you know, I'm sure your mentions were filled up the other night after Tatum had that game. And people were mad in the media about what he said after the game, that it's just another loss. I'm like, OK, if you really think that Tatum hasn't taken the finals loss seriously, I don't know what you've uh-huh. been watching, because this guy has turned out to be like the front runner for the MVP right now. And because he had made one comment after the game that wasn't even a bad comment to begin with, people completely overreacted to that. Like, I couldn't believe that was a story. We are guilty. Listen, we're all guilty. Any of us on social media, any of us who are still allowed to be on Twitter are still, you know, we over, we put too much into the random comment. It's a human nature thing. If 200,000 people see a tweet of yours and three people say something nasty about it, you tend to react to the three, you think about the three people. Oh, how can you, you know, whatever. At some point, you got to let that stuff go. And we have to be smarter about what we're consuming and smarter about, listen, fans get to react. You get to react any way you want to any of this. I just try sometimes to step back at the big picture and say, it was uh, Tatum in a bad game, one of the playoff games, obviously it all turnovers in the playoffs or whatever. And I tweeted out a list of games. There were seven or eight games. And it was like, you know, two for 12, eight points, four turnovers, two for 16, whatever. And it was a list of, I think seven or eight pretty ugly box score bad games following a Tatum game. I think it was Ian Brown, actually, who covers the Red Sox on, on MLB. And he had tweeted, he'd gone after Tatum for having a bad game in the playoffs because yeah, I, will, I will out him right now. My phone, <laughs> after a Celtics loss, you should see the text thread because I'm don't. i not responding during games anymore because I'm, I'm working, okay? You should see the text threads from people like Ian and other people during the game the other night. This is embarrassing. It's the worst because I'm not seeing it till Abby Chin and I are in a cab together racing to LAX to try to get our red eyes so we can actually see our kids for the first time in a week. And we're racing there. So you finally open the phone and there are these swings of eight or nine texts from this is the worst thing I've ever seen. This is an embarrassment. I can't stand watching this team to, oh my God, this is the greatest comeback ever. And Tatum is the guy. <laughs> and it all happens in one. And you just, you know, screenshot it and send it back to them and say, put this up in your office or over your bed the next time you think about picking up your phone and you know texting somebody in the heat of the moment but listen that's the beauty of it and i get it but i listed these games eight really bad box score games and you know what they were they were games from paul pierce's postseason in 2008 when he was the finals mvp all we don't larry bird's game nobody is sitting there looking at larry bird's bad games on youtube right because though that part of history gets forgotten but in real time, people Larry Bird would never have a game like that. Really? Paul Pierce would never have a game. Really? They had many games like that. It was a different era with the three-point shot. I understand all this. But when Marcus Smart passed Larry Bird in three-pointers made in Celtics history, you tweet, Marcus Smart just passed Larry Bird three-point. And there'll be a segment, right, of the population. Oh, my God. How can you say? First of all, I just said that he passed him in three-pointers made. I didn't say anything else. You did. But anyway. And then you know, I had this one just sitting and waiting for these people, which is through their first six or seven years, Marcus Smart shot threes at a better percentage than Larry. Look it up. Wow. I know it's shocking to hear, but Larry yeah. didn't shoot the three well until he got into that later, that 88 year it was really good for him. And those last few years, he shot huge 38, 39%, which was big back then. But the first five or six years, like she shot like 31%. <laughs> 
from three. Yeah. But nobody wants to, and I get it, because the same thing when we're working 25 years on your 25th anniversary of this podcast, somebody's going to complain about Deuce in the playoffs, right? And say, oh, he's not nearly as good as his dad. His dad would never have a bad game in the playoffs <laughs> on his way to the Hall of Fame. And then you're going to have to say, yeah, he did, right? Like Deuce's dad did have bad games playoffs before he won his championships and his MVPs and whatever. But that's all part of real time versus history, which you have a special relationship with when you're in Boston. Yeah, I mean, I've seen Deuce's form. It looks pretty good. So I, I think he's going to have a pretty good career. He, he, he's got he's, good genes, too. Yeah, right. he's going to be so, the same. I talked to it's funny. I talked to Brian Windhorst the other night. When we we're out in L.A. about that high school, you know, the Bronny James game. It happened against Carmelo's son. Oh, we yeah. I see those highlights. And the first thing he's like, man, that's really cool. And then I'm like, is it is it really cool or are we just invading these poor kids childhoods <laughs> putting them on espn and it's just i i just i hope they get to have some semblance of dairy queen you know what i mean that does not yeah it's not on espn that's all you that's all i hope for for them and i want you know it's, it's the way of it it's the way of the world and deuce is going to grow up on tv and i'm sure he's going to be fine but sometimes you swish huh? Jeez, I wish we could. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure, especially for Bronny. I mean, that's unbelievable. So I want to get to Jalen because he's having his best month of the season when Tatum actually started to struggle a little bit. We saw him get out of that. With those mid-range numbers, you know you got him. Hit me. Oh, yeah, I do. So this is, Grandy, this is unbelievable. I've been been tracking this all season long. So Yeah, he's 48 of 83. That's 57.8%. Best minimum 40 attempts. He's right ahead of Kevin Durant, which is just fascinating. Isn't that the guy he was going to be traded for? Yeah, he there was. was. Ironically, oh, yeah. Oh, Ironically, that was it. Yeah. And the other thing that sticks out to me, his pull-up jumpers are ridiculous. His two-point yeah. pull-up jumpers, he's 56.4%. He actually has more pull-up points this season than Jason Tatum does, 165 to 160 and you just think about it. Everything's better with Jalen. His field goal percentage is over 50%. His two is 58.9%. And I thought that Tatum would take a leap this forward, right? Like this season, I should say. I thought that Tatum, there was another step for him. With Jalen, I was kind of like, okay, he's still a really good player. And he can still be the number two guy on a team that plays for an NBA Finals. But I didn't know that there was going to be another step for Jalen. And now this whole mid-range pull-up jump shot, that's something he can get to whenever he wants, especially in the postseason, I mean, did you think that there was another leap for Jalen? Maybe I'm an idiot for like thinking that way, but I just didn't see it. I think Jason Tatum is in the classic spot of being an amazing player who's in that cast in that number two role that he's not the first guy you look at for a variety of reasons. But first of all, think about the shots. Don't close your eyes if you're driving, but if you're not driving, close your eyes for a second. Think about the shots he's taking. The one the other night, he's been doing this. He's running to a spot. And shooting on the move, like he came from the baseline the other night to run back to his spot near the free throw line. He's hitting fallaways. He hits moving like on the move. All the things I tell my son, don't ever do this. <laughs> don't ever like try to be stationary when you shoot. And his shooting is gone. It's It really is insane. And it's, it's been going that way for a couple of years. And I said to my son's like, is he going to be on the all-star team? I said, not only is he going to be on the all-star team, he wasn't last year because he was hurt. He missed too many games. Remember, all-star games are based on – they happen 50 games into the year, but the team is decided by based on what happens in the first 25 or 30 games. And Jason and Jalen Brown missed half those games last year. That's why he wasn't on the all-star team. You can make a legitimate case if we had the old school East versus West. 
he's starting. It's yeah. him or Donovan. It's him or Donovan Mitchell for the fifth spot. Really, you think of Tatum and Giannis and Embiid and Durant. Who's the fifth guy? If it's not Jalen Brown, it's Jalen Brown and Donovan Mitchell in that fifth spot. And again, maybe they'll be picked on the same team or however that's going to work. But how cool would that be if it was an old school All Star game to have the two of them yeah. starting? You know. Next to each other. Yeah, I'm with you. I think it should go back to that, by the way. Like, I like the captains was, for a while. Cute. But I, I like, listen, yeah. I like new ideas. You and I were talking about, the, you know, NBC Boston doing players only, right? I, I'm in favor of anything, you know, anything new, anything different. Uh, try it. Absolutely. Listen, you want to have a tournament in the middle of the year for the FA Cup in December and Adam, Adam wants to do it. So I think we should do it. What's the, what's the worst? What basketball tragedy is going to come out of having a midseason tournament? Just like having the same guys pick it, but it does. If it doesn't have the feel of an all-time fifty-year thing of having guys pick the All-Star team, okay, let's go back to it for a couple of years and then have a new idea. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, it was cool, like Curry and LeBron drafting or Giannis. That was fun for a while, but let's go back to the old school way. That's what I enjoyed. And by the Elon way, I'm speaking- ending. I'm into the Elon ending for the All-Star. Team. Oh, that is really cool. I think that is phenomenal. I really like that. With Kizik hands free shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. The other thing I would say, too, just about um, Jalen is the other thing he's going to get is all NBA, which means he's going to get a Supermax this yep. upcoming offseason, which is great. Bill and I were talking about that last week. Like he's legitimately going to get a Supermax and you're not going to have to worry about Jalen's future anymore. We're never going to have to w- worry about trade rumors either. The other thing is, if you look at Jalen, I heard him the other night say that him and Tatum are the best two way players in the NBA. And he also called Tatum the big dog when he was out of the lineup. It just feels like, and remember Tatum after the game against Miami when they won the Eastern Conference said, they said to break us up. It just feels like, Sean, these guys are like, for lack of a better term, all in on each other now. Not that they ever weren't like, but it does feel like they've, over these past couple of years, building up to calluses, like they're really together right now. Well, I don't think any of us, let alone stubborn professional athletes, want to be told what to do or what they want or whatever. A lot of it is like, oh, yeah, well, we're going to go this way. Uh, you know, we were fans were all told, if you remember this, you probably do because you're covering media and you're following. We were all told, fans were told how much they were going to hate and hate Tony Romo. Oh, man, they're going to kill Tony Romo. He gets a, you know what? Everybody got told that all summer, and I'm convinced that he – I mean, Tony's great, but I'm convinced that – Fans were so t- sick of being told how much they weren't going to like Tony Romo that as soon as he got in the booth, they're like, "Oh yeah, well, we love this guy. We like because nobody wants to be told what to do or what they like or how it's going to work." Even the thing last year with Marcus, which you know, should he have said it, it probably would have been better for all of us had he not said it because we wouldn't have had to spend a lot of energy talking about it. But by the way, was he wrong? <laughs> in no, he's Marcus right. Said, not only was he right, go back and listen to it in the context and tone with which he said it because he wasn't railing after a game and oh, these guys don't get he was saying eventually these two guys are going to learn to blah, 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 and they have to do this and they have to do that he was exactly right everything he said was right better in house sure but he was exactly right with everything he said and i love that they are different men as well as being different players i think that adds to the 
you know, Jalen is, it, it seems on the surface to be the strangest comparison you could ever make analogy wise. But the only one I could ever come up with with Jalen was Bill Bradley with the Knicks in the seventies. And that as good a player as he was, he was a really good player. You knew his contribution to the world was going to be more significant after he retired. And those days, like that's the beauty of it is that I love that Jalen is all in now. Cause we know at 40 years old, Jalen Brown's going to be the governor of Georgia. I don't know what path he's going to choose, but whatever he chooses, I mean, my God, if Herschel Walker can almost win office in Georgia, <laughs> Jalen Brown's going to be like unanimous. You know, he's going to get 90% of the vote. If, her, you know, Herschel Walker and his badge can get 50-50. You know, uh, so we all know that's coming, but I think he is smart enough and wise enough, which is amazing when you consider how old these guys are. Just think about the nonsense we were doing when we were 25 years old. Right. And the, like the mantle yeah. of leadership, or whatever that these two have. But I think that they both know, particularly Jalen knows that that he can be the governor. He's not going to be the governor of Georgia next week. And that his impact on the world is going to be very significant. Might as well go all in now while you have a chance to, you know, you only have these few years, whatever, to become a Hall of Fame player and an NBA champion. And they're both they're in on each other. And I think they're in on it, you know, for themselves. And I love, by the way, that Tatum doesn't. When you someone brings up the MVP, he doesn't go. Oh, I'm, I'm you know I'm here for the team. I don't think about that stuff because it's a lie when everybody yeah. else says. It. And he doesn't lie. He said, "Yeah, I dreamed about it since I was a kid." Does that make him play less hard? Does it not? You know, no. There's nothing wrong with that ambition because he knows full well that the MVP. I voted on it for 18 years. But MVP is the best player on the best team. So to win it, you got to be on the best team, and he knows that. Yeah, I would give it to if it, if it, the the voting ended today, I would certainly give it to him. Except the only the other years they didn't give it to Russell Westbrook just because he averaged a triple double. That was a ridiculous award. I don't want to relitigate that, but that was absolutely ridiculous. But I do like Jalen too. He's got he's always been like expressive, but he had the ice in his veins one the other day. He's always screaming um him. So I just love the chemistry those two guys have. So I did want to ask you because there's been the Brogdon storyline, the Missoula storyline. I do want to get to Missoula in a second here, but. I almost feel like Grant Williams is quietly having like this unbelievable season where he's significantly better than he was last year. If you just go through it, his field goal percentage is up to 55, 55.4, 46.5% from threes. His twos Those are up to six. Those numbers are down. Those numbers yeah. are down the last couple of weeks. That's how yeah. ridiculous they were. Right, and his two-point field goal percentage is up from 59 to 69%. And, and now I feel like he can drive and go. He can drive closeouts. He's 24 of 30 in the restricted areas, 18 of 30 from floater range. This is Grant Williams. I saw him bust out a spin move in one of these games the other day. Like, his level of improvement, and this has to be something with the Celtics, right? Because we've seen it with Jalen through the years, not to say Grant was going to be that level of player, but the player development within this organization has been ridiculous. You just look at a couple guys on this team, and Grant, I— Again, I come back to the Jalen thing. I thought that Grant was a good NBA player. He's going to get paid a ton of money because he can hit threes. He can play defense, but he's taken another leap forward as well. Yeah. And you have to listen, you got to draft. Also, there's an institutional thing and yet it's organizational and the Celtics can take some credit for guys getting better, but it's also about drafting players with a mindset, uh, you know, a championship, get better mindset at what it is that they do. And yeah, Grant, talk about getting paid. He's not going to, he didn't Aaron judge himself. As far as like that is the standard, right? For betting on yourself now as Aaron Judge. But he did the and the Celtics, it wasn't like the Celtics were penny pitching. We know that was circumstance that the Celtics could offer him this. And I think this is all gonna have a happy ending for everybody. The Celtics will keep him and he'll be paid a lot more. Life will be good and it'll be the way everybody wants it to be. But uh you have to appreciate and by the way, is another guy 
who everyone thinks is older than he really is. He's younger than than Jason the Jailer. And yeah. yet carries himself with the same maturity. And again, not to overplay any one particular thing, but man, anyone that knows my personal relationship with him knows it's painful for me to say anything nice about Brad because I have to like fight every instinct to kind of <laughs> attack him and everything that is Indiana anti-New Yorker <laughs> thing stands for. Although I will say the same, the only time I've ever the best time I've ever had around Brad is we would occasionally we would both run, you know, we're on the road somewhere. And you you got to get out and get a run in whatever. In Indianapolis, running with Brad in Indianapolis, I've never felt safer in my life because if a car came near him, it would swerve <laughs> into a tree rather than hit Brad. So it's like the, you just felt invinced like you were running with Superman and, you know, this, this invisible force field. But of all the things he's done, he's done an awful lot. Again, it's hurting me to get this out. But, man, Al Horford or Kemba Walker bringing Al back into oh, this my God. room. And again, this is under the umbrella of Grant and younger guys getting better. Having those guys in the room that don't need the ball. And, you know, Al and Brad just, they were basketball. They were player coach soulmates from the time he got here, right, in 2016. And just, boy, pulling that off. And when Jimmy O'Brien came in here, he had to do something that I thought was difficult, being Rick Pitino's assistant, which is basically take over the job and reverse everything that Rick Pitino had done basically. And to do that respectfully, you know what I mean? To do that respectfully. Yeah. Brad has been in a lot of ways for better or worse. And listen, Danny's a, a hall of fame general manager, right? Like he won a championship here. Look at everything he's done, but Brad really has gone the other way in a lot of ways. He's brought more veteran players back. He's got rid of all the draft picks that Danny, had. he's gone in a completely different direction and it's hard to do that respectfully. And he's, he's done it because he was in that, you know, he was in those, I guess they were nicer shoes. People wear sneakers now, coach, but they were. He was in those shoes, and uh, he has pushed a lot of, a lot of buttons. Let's say before we get to Derek White. I mean, yeah, it's a, yeah. No, it's, it's a, a good point. I mean, you think you think about it too. All these guys that he's traded for, like he brought back Al, he traded for Brogdon in the offseason. I'll get to him in a second, and the Derek White trade that you referenced last year. All those guys are two way players, right? So I'm sure part of the calculus for Brad has to be like, what hurt me the most as a coach. Well, it's when I had to hide a guy on one side of the ball and all these guys and give Derek White credit. I mean, his three point numbers are through the roof this year compared to last year. And he's going to continue to get open threes based on the players that he plays with. But it does feel like there was an emphasis on, hey, every guy we get has to be able to defend and has to be able to be a threat on the other side of the floor. And with Joe Mazzulla, how many guys does he have on the team that actually play that are one way players? It's a very small percentage. Yeah, yeah, he's it's a. It's really interesting. The whole Will Hardy, Joe Mazzola thing is really fascinating because they're just in completely different circumstances. And we were all kind of, you know, waiting for Danny to. It's funny because Will Hardy had almost the, if you look at almost to the record, the start that Will had in Utah here, very similar to Brad's first year. The Celtics were in first place into December that first year when the idea was, the idea was to lose a lot of, you knew the team was going to lose a lot of games and they were better off losing a lot of games. But for up until December, the Celtics were right around 500. They were in first place, and then Toronto got rid of Rudy Gay, and that's when the Raptors took over the division. But, uh, you know, something similar has happened there. But, you know, Will and Joe have completely different situations to to coach their way through. And you're kind of waiting for the inevitable. That was, what, a two-game bump, and people are, okay, all right, well, how Joe, how's Joe Mazzulli going to deal with this? He's going to deal with it the same way he's dealt with everything else. Is he, is he, not, is he not Brad? 
I mean, it's like, hey, the plane just blew an engine. All right, well, we got the other engine, and we're just going to fly. You know, he's going to be unaffected by this. He's been Joe Mazzula is new to you, but he's been preparing for this moment for thirty four years. Yeah, I love his demeanor. It's a good point. I think he is more like Brad than he is obviously Ime, who was really outspoken. He'd get into it with the players. Joe Mazzula seems to be totally different. Although we heard that he did call out Tatum and he called out Jalen and he called out Smart after the the back to back losses. Hey, do you know what type of gum it is that he's chewing? It has aspartame in it. I know that because my son asked him on the pregame show one night. I had my son ask him a question, and he it was about the gum because that's what fascinated my son since his dad won't ever let him chew gum. Like he's become ultra fascinated by gum, so that's what he was asking about. And he told him to like look it up and do a report on it, like for the next time he sees him and stuff like that. So I, the thing I have a difficult time believing is that he does not. He's only doing two sticks a game, like one for each half. And I'm like, you really, at this point, you're it's okay every time out, like to to switch at this point. I get it. We're all we all come from humble backgrounds and we, you know, wrap yeah. up our leftovers in aluminum foil and stuff like that. If you, you know, if you grew up humbly, as a lot of us did, but um yeah, I'd I'd, I'd like to see him relax a little bit on that. And maybe on some yeah, of the, I, some of the pregame shows we do too, I'd like to see a little more uh you know, I'm working on that on that angle. But yeah, I mean, I hope he hasn't had like much dental work. Like, if he's got a crown, that sucker is going to come out at some point because you can't beat you on the same piece of gum that long. I mean, he's going to be in serious trouble. But speaking of him, what have you noticed? Obviously, the offense has been way better. What sticks out to you about what he's doing? I mean, one of the things I look at is they're using Tatum a lot more as a screener, and that's one of the great things about Tatum. He's willing to be an even an off the ball screener, which you don't see a lot from a player of his caliber that he's willing to do that. And when Smart's like the only shooter on the floor, I noticed they're using him a lot as a screener as well. The transition numbers are way up from last year. But from your perspective, you're there every night. What do you see that's different about the offense under Missoula compared to Ime? Or is it just they've improved on what they were doing last year? Well, the asterisk I put on that is, you know, which which last year are you talking about? The first half mm-hmm. of last year, the second half of last year. Because, again, True. go back to if you watch, the, you're not even going to recognize some of the players that were in the game. Not to mention the whole COVID thing with, you know, the, all the influx of players. Joe Johnson playing games for this team last year in this insane year that it went through. Uh, I think the ability to hit the ground running, to pick up where they left off last year. <laughs> Spate, listen, I, you cannot – every question Joe gets, he pivots to spacing. And that's the thing that you notice. And that Obviously, most teams now spend more time on offense in the offseason, which is why you're seeing these crazy scores and the defense has to catch up. Uh, but I think in this case, what were the shortfalls last year? Were offensively, lack of spacing, too many turnovers, and not enough depth on the bench. So that's what you have to do from a coaching standpoint. That's the focus of spacing. Brad's focus was you know, Gallinari and Brogdon and strengthening the, the things that you didn't have. So that's what you want to hit the ground running with. And I don't think Joe's philosophy is that much different to the point where here's a like here's a soundbite to pull. We were talking about this the other day, that I hope, however it all plays out, I think we all know how it's going to play out. If, when, whatever this team accomplishes, is there going to be a championship, whatever it's going to be, I hope that Ime's name is not whitewashed from the record book and his role in everything this team did accomplish last year and is going to accomplish now because he somebody came up the other day in one of these kind of silly sports radio type discussions if the Celtics win a championship, does he may get a ring? And it becomes more, I, literally, I don't care, literally, <laughs> about the ring. But philosophically, 
As far as the metaphor is concerned, to me, the answer to that is absolutely. Like you cannot discount his contribution and what, I don't think this year happens without last year or certainly not the way that it's happening. I mean, it was just part of, you know, part of the process. But I bring that up because when you said changing from last year, which last year, there were two or mm-hmm. three, you know, they argue there were a lot more than two last years. You know, we're just going through yep. this time. Selfish were on the West Coast last year, exact same time. Very similar road trip, Lakers, Clippers, Suns, and they got hammered in those games. And he may have been had about 20-something games in six weeks, and that was the end of that. Like, he gave them the rope, <laughs> and that was that was enough of that after that Phoenix game last year, and then just started going at him. I mean, you had – I've always liked him very much as a player, and I like him as a guy too. But you had Dennis Schroeder rondoing the ball up the court. Oh, my God. Year. Right, and that it doesn't fit anymore. It's like Ron, you know, you look at Rondo, the Rondo years here, and you realize what an aberration to where where the game was headed, and why players become outdated, and why it's so tough to compare players across eras, because Rondo was an elite player in the world ten years ago, and what would 2013 Rondo do in this league now? What's his What's his role in this league if he can't make that shot? Yeah. It's so funny. My favorite NBA stat right now is that Blake Griffin led the NBA in taking charges last year. Let's see. Let's let's do a little autopsy on that. Who was the point guard in front of him that guys would have been getting? Oh, okay. So <laughs> it's, you know what I'm saying? Like it's it's sometimes that's when I like stats. I love them because they're interesting, but I can you could throw, hey, the Celtics are eighth in true shooting percentage over that. Doesn't mean ask yourself why. Why is this happening? Why did Blake Griffin lead the league in taking charge last year? Okay. Well, why were guys constantly getting by the guy in front of him? Who was the guy in front of him? Okay. That's a that that tells me a story. The Celtics are the best three-point shooting team, one of the best ever right now. And Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are both in the bottom half, maybe the bottom third right now. I haven't done, you know, yeah. my charts for tomorrow of and three-point shooters in the league. By the way, if you people who don't live on stat head and are on those stats right now if you you know the answer to this question probably but if i, I asked my son who's 11 as we were driving home out of 154 whatever the number is three-point shooters in the league who's last in the league right now dead last in three-point shooting it's trey young trey young is last Holy in three-point shooting. right so you can make numbers do whatever you want I'm out on Trey Young, by the way, just as an aside. I mean, I, I like guys that actually play on both sides of the floor. He's not, I, I can't... He's not handling uh, not being the best player on that team anymore. No, he, he's not handling well, that well like at all. Me. Yeah. And by the way, you're completely right on Ime. He does deserve credit because I, I think that the Schroeder thing was great because when you got him out of here, you basically brought in the opposite guy in Derek White, who's like a quick decision maker, two seconds or less. He's either going to shoot, he's going to pass it, or he's going to dribble. Like he makes decisions incredibly quick. And then the smart thing was huge when they finally realized, hey, he actually is the point guard and it worked out for him. And then obviously Eme getting to these guys last year. So he gets a lot of credit for that. On Brogdon, so he's only had two games where he's played over 30 minutes, and one of them was without Marcus, and the other one was against the Clippers because he was the best player for the Celtics in that game, so they rode him. And it's interesting, he's at 23.3 a game, six on the team, but the efficiency is way up, right? He's number one in the league in three-point shooting, 48.4%. So do you think this is a conscious thing from the Celtics? They know, hey, we gave up a first-round pick for a really good player, but that player, the reason we only had to give up basically a first-round pick in Neesmith is because of the injuries where they say, hey, we got to keep him 25 minutes or less, make sure he gets to the finish line, because if we don't, then we're really putting him in jeopardy and, in essence, putting our season in jeopardy, not having him as well. 
here's a misconception, very common and natural misconception that comes from being in the fantasy basketball world that we all live in, where I can drop Chris Middleton on my team tomorrow. I can trade Chris Middleton to you for Fred Van Vliet on my fantasy team because I need more steals or whatever. And you plug and play in real life. A player's value on any given team is completely different depending on who, what's the situation, who are the players around him in 2005. This is either senility or institutional memory, depending on what kind of spin you want to put on. But in 2005, the Celtics and Sixers were both trying to make a run in the Eastern conference and the Sixers made a trade for Chris Weber. They got Chris Weber to add to their team. And we were all, your first instinct is, oh, no, man, Chris Weber going to Philadelphia. That's, And then you start saying, wait a minute, Chris Weber playing Jimmy O'Brien's blitzing defense, that's not going to work. And guess what? It didn't work because they didn't fit together. It was not a good fit. It, fit is everything here. And when you have five players on the floor at the same time, this isn't, I'm going to, I need, I need someone, I need someone who's going to have a 900 OPS to who's going to have a 380 on base percentage to play second base and hit seven. I can find that guy and he may or may not fit. You know, I, I can take Trevor Story and plug him into the lineup and still finish last as it turns out. Oh, don't go there. Do I'm not gonna, go I'm there. Gonna, I'm going to renew my tickets anyway. Chris Weber was this great player, but didn't fit in that spot. Brogdon has always he's been a Celtic killer. He's been a, a lot of teams killers over the years, but it didn't work for him as being the guy because he wasn't good enough or because he just, that was that load on his body at his age and his experience level for 36, 37 minutes was too much. All right, find him a team where he can play 20, 26, 28 minutes. And this was the spot. And he is exactly what the Celtics did not have last June. Yeah. And he's got that drive game too. And I felt like Scal made, and I think you're on the broadcast when this happened. Scal made a really good point where he said he can't play the 35 minutes, but when I was, he plays, I was there the night he made a really good point. Yeah, one of them. Did like balloons <laughs> drop from the ceiling and stuff like that? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it it was you know every a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. Come but on now, it, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It was a good point though that he made where he said like Brogdon actually admitted that hey, I can't do, I can't play 35 minutes. I I can't. I I figure I can't do it. I get have all these injuries and whatnot. And so when he gets in the game, like he's going right to the basket. His drive game has been a total difference maker for the Celtics where they didn't have that guy outside of Tatum and Brown last year. And I, I look back to the NBA finals. It's like, man, it would have been nice to have that off the bench in those games because he does. It feels like it's very difficult to stop him from getting to the rim. Well, he's used to being the guy and he largely gets to be the guy in this, in this yeah. segment of the game, which again, every segment of the game, you're like, well, it was late third quarter, early fourth quarter minutes. We'll just throw anybody out there. Do those minutes count less? Do those points count less? They didn't the other night in the Laker game, by the way, when the Lakers went on like an 82 to three run, you know, late third or early fourth. Those all count. All those minutes count. And by the way, uh, our, under the umbrella of our bird to Tatum to Jason to Deuce conversations, where you only appreciate what's past, Scal had to follow one of the all time legends in broadcasting and local broadcasts ever. And so, you're walking in a situation where no one's ever going to appreciate all the stuff that Scal says and that he is as tapped into the league as anybody and that he's coached in this league. And I get it. We all like romanticize about what was, but you know, I hope people appreciate, you know, that Scal just, there's nobody more enthusiastic. That is so much a part of what we do. And he, you know, he brings it, he's bringing it every night. Yeah, one of my favorite things about Scal is you can tell like this guy played in the NBA for what a decade or so. 
and he still has the excitement. Like he's seeing something for the first time. Like the way that he has become obsessed with the cornet contest is unbelievable. And for people that don't know what we're talking about, you probably do, but cornet just like jumps in the middle of the lane and somehow it like affects shooters. Like it, it's working. Like by the numbers, somebody wrote an article about it a couple of weeks ago. Like it's actually working. But Scal is like. Maine, too. It worked in the G League, too. Oh, it did. So that's yeah. where they, they tried yeah. it out. But Scal gets like legitimately excited every time he does it. It's gonna, it's gonna break his heart when a shot goes in. We were doing, and by the way, it has had. We were doing a game one night, and I said something like, "And you know, opponents now are shooting twenty six point eight one percent again." And I said, "No, I'm just, I just made that up. I'm just kidding." <laughs> because, uh, but it, and shots have gone in over the cornet contest, but it's a real thing and it's fun. And what again, part of the beauty of Scala is, a lot of players who played in a different era tend to always. Well, my era was the best, or whatever. And Scout will be the very first one to tell you the NBA's never been better than it is now. They've never been every night. You know, there's like Shed Gilgis Alexander, and what and OKC isn't going to sniff the playoffs. And they've got a guy that can go off for 40 on any given night. There's so many good players all at the same time in the league. And that's you know part of his enthusiasm about it is that you know it's a, it's a great time to be connected to the NBA. Well, yeah, I mean, just look back to that Cavaliers team that took the Celtics seven games the year they won the championship, right? Like, have this Celtics team play them, they would absolutely wax them. Like, that team was LeBron and a bunch of random players. Like, who was the second best player on that team? Like, Mo Williams? Who hit the last shot in that series? In the epic LeBron-Paul Pierce game for the ages, everyone remember, who hit the last shot? Was it Leon Poe? No, but but you have hit on another uh, characteristic that he has, which is that he played for both the Celtics and the Cavaliers. But that's Posey? Sasha Posey? Oh, wow. Which, by the way, brings into a whole new subculture of the new generation hardcore fans. Do you remember when the following, in the last 10 years, when the following players, the Sasha Pavlovich, Carlos Arroyo, my personal favorite, who as the voice of the team, I don't even remember Joel Anthony playing games for the Celtics, but he did. Uh, Tayshaun Prince was here. Jameer Nelson was here. Guys have played games. You can make yeah. a whole list of guys and you look at it and you what these guys played for the Celtics in the last six, seven years. Yep. Yeah, he that's did. gonna that's gonna yeah. be like Josh Richardson in a couple of years. So you're like, wait, yeah. Josh Richardson Josh was on good. the Celtics. Romeo Lankford's, Romeo Lankford's having good games now. Yeah. In San Antonio and uh um yeah. And Indiana and Neesmith had a good game for Indiana last week. I'm looking forward to seeing them because they're they have that they're frisky irrational confidence of youth which makes them awfully dangerous on a lot of nights. They're fun. They can lose by 40, but they they can beat you too. And that's, again, that's a team. Look at team Indiana, Portland, teams that were supposed to be nowhere near the conversation. And they've been beating teams in the first part of the year. It's, it's fun. All right, Grandy, before we let you go, because, look, I know this, but I don't know if a lot of other people know this. Like, going from doing play-by-play on TV to the radio, it's totally different. So how's it going this year for you? Because you're, it feels like you're doing a lot more TV games than you've done in the past. You like jumping back and forth, working with Max, and then working with Scal, going back and forth between things? Yeah, I'm a cut. Listen, I'm always the guy that when it was when I was doing hockey, I'd be like, oh, I miss doing baseball. When I'm doing basketball, I'm like, oh, I miss doing football. And, you know, because you want – I. I love doing everything TV and radio. That's the, it keeps you energized that this is, and I hope people have, you know, people have noticed it or they haven't, but I've really, I felt energized this year by doing both by working with different people. It just sharpens the the tools, you know, doing, it is a complete basketball might be 
of the major sports. It might be the most different on TV to radio. Hockey, you're still identifying players. Football, you are to some degree because there's a lot of players. Like hockey, there's so many players on the screen. You still have to identify the player right. when you're calling the play by play. I still, you know, posture knock up the right side. You know, you don't have to say right side on TV, but you still need to identify the player. There's little subtleties like that. So it took me, I would say, four or five games to get, you know, like to get up and running to get your rhythm back where you're, you know, I felt like I was probably laying out too much, like overcompensating. But that is that is the challenge. And I, I'm, I am partial to when people ask me, who are the greatest announcers ever? And, of course, Mike Emmerich is the greatest hockey announcer of all time. No one would argue that. But I've always been partial to the Sean McDonough types that can do a hockey game on TV one night and a baseball game on radio the next night. And that's complete bias on my part because that's obviously what I – that's my skill set. That's what I do, and I like doing it. But that, to me, is the true – you know, the throwback nature of being a great play-by-play guy is, you know, when I tell kids when I'm speaking at seminars or broadcasting camps, which they didn't have when I was a kid, because, man, that would have been awesome, is when they came to me with the MMA thing, that was, I literally was starting from zero on MMA because who has time, you know, you don't have time to watch. Right. Um, And now it's a big part of my life, but I was start. can I do that? That was my question. Can I do that at the elite level? Can I take a sport that I knew nothing about, start from zero, and then do that because, first of all, all of us in all of our lives, all of our professions, jump off a cliff. Somebody gives you a chance to jump off a cliff, do it. Because you don't want to be the guy that walks down the mountain because you were afraid to jump. Like, no one, there's nothing about that. That's not the kind of life you want to live. When you look back on it, it's like, yeah, I walked down the side of the mountain because I don't want to jump. And that MMA thing was because you think social media is rough, generally speaking. Try going into a new sport because they were, you know, Oh, here comes the NBA guy. Here comes the <laughs> here comes the other sport guy. We're waiting. Come on, we're waiting for him to screw up. Uh, so it becomes a challenge. But eventually, if you treat sport with respect and you tell the stories or whatever, eventually time goes by and they can make. You know what? I kind of like this guy. I kind of get a kick out of this guy, and he says something funny once in a while. He, whatever. And that's the whole nature of my job, especially now, is being invite is being in homes cars and tablets and devices to which you were not necessarily invited and making yourself welcome. That's not an easy thing to do, mm-hmm. especially now. And so circling it back, now you asked me a broadcasting question. So you brought this on yourself to get the long answer, because first of all, anyone in my profession that uses one word and they could just as easily use 10, just isn't trying hard enough. Number one, but you know, number two, the idea is to do as many things you can do. And I love working with Scal and I love working with Abby and there's so many talented people uh, connected to it. And if it brings a little exposure to, Hey, I've never tried Grandy and Max on radio side. Maybe one of these games coming up, I'll try, you know, I'm in the car and I'm listening to that because I have a job, you know, Brian, where for years, you know, the, when I was doing baseball, it was the thrill of my life because I'd always wanted to do baseball and it was an honor to do it and be involved with the Red Sox and spend a summer in the booth with Joe. But Joe Castiglione has always gotten to be the voice of, summer barbecues and days at the beach. Max and I in New England are the voices of scraping off your car. You know, (laughs) that's like this horrendous winter. That's all we are is that. So be able to do something different. And, you know, eventually you don't realize you just come into work every night. And then one day the new head of the NCAA, Charlie Baker, former governor of Massachusetts, was giving giving a speech. He was opening the hour back and he said, man, there's just nothing better than listening to Grandy and Max on the radio and a Celtics game. And I'm like, what? 
Like you never, there are times, honestly, and Max and I do the show this way, if anybody's ever heard us, sometimes we're like, wait a minute, people are listening. <laughs> you don't even, <laughs> you're just doing the job and you don't even think of it. But I think there's a responsibility that comes with being connected to a team when years go by, particularly in this era where you can be in love with Xander Bogarts and then he's going to be wearing brown and yellow, you know, the next couple of years. And that being an announcer with a team, I think it's more important now than it was because it being part of the furniture. And uh, I think it's important as time goes by when there's so little consistency. Well, it's a great answer until you brought up Bogarts again. I don't, I don't know why you have to keep coming because back. I'm to not, I, I, maybe by saying it out loud, it will, you know. The uh, pain will go we, away. We all, yeah, we all know what happens. It's going to be difficult. And I here's the tying it together for me. So the year I did the Red Sox was 2013. My last game as the announcer of one of the, as my in my Red Sox announcing career was Xander's first game. Xander was on the flight. It was a Sunday night game against the Yankees. Monday, wow. we flew the day of the game. This is how crazy baseball is. We flew from Boston to San Francisco on Monday morning, and Xander got called up and was on the flight with us to San Francisco, played that night. I did the game that night, and I'm like, I'm just in my glory. John Lester and Tim Linscombe. Joe had a personal thing, and he was late, so it was the first time I was doing the first couple of innings. I'm, like, setting the outfield, you know, setting the defense, and Lester and Linscombe on Monday night in San Francisco. Where else would you rather be? I'm just in my glory. And literally the next day, so Xander, that's the tie, and Xander starts. Then the next day I get the phone call saying, Max and I and the Celtics have been traded to the other radio. We're starting at the new radio station. We switched over from EEI to 98.5. Mm-hmm. It happened the next day. We were in San Francisco. Wow. And that was the end of – and six weeks later – I'm on a new station doing the first Brad Stevens game in Toronto with Vitor Favorini starting at center for the Celtics. And that night, the Red Sox won the World Series. And that is uh, insane. I never knew that. That's crazy. I, I didn't realize it happened like in that same time period. I knew when they went over to 98.5, but I didn't realize it was like, that is absolutely insane. But It was a late summer deal. It was one of those things that happened really late. So that was late August when Xander yeah. got called up in that series, that Red Sox series in San Francisco was the end of August. And they've been trying to work things out. We had done this show on EEI all summer, the Celtic summer cooler in anticipation of going back to EEI next year. And that was the summer we had the drama with Doc. You know, is Doc staying? Is Doc leaving? And then that all happened. And then the last story ever to be broken by press release, read Brad Stevens, named coach of the Celtics. And pretty soon, new station, new coach, new everything. And, uh, you know, it was that, 11, well, nine years ago. I can say unequivocally. I can say unequivocally, it was certainly a mistake by EEI to not keep the Celtics. I mean, the, one of the best brands in the sports world. I don't know why you wouldn't keep them. I know there's a lot of business stuff involved there in is. that, but yeah, mm-hmm. but I think, I think. And you know, it's really funny because as we talk, this is as crazy inside baseball and Boston radio for anyone that could possibly care. But this is our 10th year on 98.5 and the rights are up at the end of the year. And as great as the relationship has been, and both stations are great you could make the case that the Celtics and Bruins should not be on the same station. I agree. That's where, that's where they run in, and that's been the problem. The only downside of the 10 years is that 98.5 has the Celtics and the Bruins and the Patriots. So it's caused some, you know, in a perfect world, it probably wouldn't work out that way. But we just, uh, you know, I, I go where I'm told and uh, money to whatever station. And now if they tell me to go wear makeup and wear a nice tie for TV, then – I'll do that. And do I have Abby to toss to or not? Because if I toss to Abby and she's not there because it's radio, it's just dead air. And <laughs> Scal came, Scal came to fill in on a radio game. And my goal generally now in these games, TV, if you guys haven't figured it out, that watch, 
is how many times can I get him to laugh in the course of a game is basically my thing. And so the first time he filled in with me on radio, he sits with me and we're about to start the game. And I said, you know what, Mike's job, Mike Gorman's job is cooler than mine. He goes, no. I said, watch this. Uh, Celtics about to tip off here against the Rockets for more. Let's go downstairs to Abby Chin. And of course, it was dead air, nothing. I said, that's why. See, when I do it, nothing happened. And, <laughs> and that was the first of many times. And as the Celtics proceeded to get pounded by the Rockets, that was the game before the famous flight to the West Coast in 2019 where the Rockets beat, came in and beat the Celtics by about 80 um, four years ago. I, where are my car keys? I don't know, Brad, but I remember games from institutional <laughs> memory. Hey, well, better times now. Better times now for the Celtics. Yeah, that is Sean Grandy. Sean, great stuff. We we always have enjoyed you with Max, but now like seeing you more with Scal, it's been a lot of fun this year. I had a ton of fun talking with you tonight. Thanks so much for your time. Have a great call against the Magic. Robert Williams bowl back. Bowl. Yes, bowl. Robert Williams bowl bowl to bring it full circle. Thanks so much, Sean. You got it. All right, great stuff there from Sean Grandy. I cannot wait for the Celtics game tomorrow night at the Garden. Robert Williams back, Al's back. I mean, less important that Al's back, not because Al isn't a great player, but just because we haven't seen Robert Williams play all season long. Friday night is going to be absolutely electric at the Garden, so I cannot wait for that one against the Magic. I never thought I'd say that. I can't wait for the Celtics to play the Magic, although Bancaro's been very entertaining this year as well. So that'll be a fun game tomorrow night at the Garden. All right, 617-396-7172 is the number. That's 617-396-7172. We got a time for a call here. Brian, how are you? This is Darren Madigan from uh, Chicago, native of uh, Brookline. Love the show. Um, I was thinking back to your points last week about the Patriots' weapons and uh, how their receivers stack up against some of the other great offenses in the NFL. And... The most alarming thing about that is let's not forget the Patriots spend the most money in the NFL on wide receivers and tight ends. Think about that. That is really tragic, uh, how little talent they've been able to accumulate for the amount of money that they're spending. So if you think about, like, the Red Sox, like, we're blaming Haim and the ownership, right? We're not blaming Cora. So as much as we rail on Patricia and Mac and, and the people who have to um, execute on the field, um, and I'm no defender of Patricia. He has no business being our OC. Um, Belichick really is is the one who who the spotlight should be on here. He put together this team, um, and he he's he's failed in in many many regards. Certainly on the roster, and definitely on the coaching personnel and the people that he's entrusted with with the offense. Thanks again. Um, love to hear your thoughts. All right, great call and a great point there about the. Uh... Highest paid tight end and receiver group in the entire NFL. I mean, think about it. I mean, what have you really gotten out of Jonu Smith? Nothing. I wish they would have gotten more out of Hunter Henry, but for some reason, some games, he's just not in the game plan. Last week should have been the game where he went completely off. He did have that one big catch in the scene, but if you think about it, that Arizona Cardinals team came into the NFL or came into that week as one of the worst teams defending the tight end position in the entire league. So it didn't really make sense that they weren't using Hunter Henry more than they actually did. When they did, he actually made a big play. So I do agree with you. It's on Bill that they don't have good enough weapons for the quarterback and good enough tight ends and good enough receivers. That is on the guy that's putting the team together. He, unlike the Dolphins and unlike the Philadelphia Eagles, he didn't go after a premier weapon this particular offseason, which aggravated me. I was all in on A.J. Brown. They decided not to do that. All right, which does bring me to this game this week, Patriots and Raiders. And one of the things that I've been really thinking about over the past couple of days is 
Man, how does Mac Jones feel right now? Just because he's looking at his old guy, Josh McDaniels. Those guys had a really good relationship. And I get it. Josh McDaniels and the Raiders have obviously underachieved this year. They have not had a good season whatsoever. And Mac is saying all the right things. He says, Josh is a great coach, but we have great coaches here, too. It's like, yeah, nobody fucking believes that, Mac. But anyway, he does the right thing. He says what the company wants him to say. But you just look at it from Mac's perspective. Last year, his passer rating was 91.3, which was 17th out of 33 qualifiers. This year, that's down to 85.7, which is 25th of 36 qualifiers. So if you're Mac, you think you are going to improve on the 91.3. Instead, you're going the other way. Usually, we don't see second-year quarterbacks regress. It's very rare in the NFL. We saw it with RG3 coming off an injury. He had some character issues as well, demanding different plays from the Shanahans, which now seems completely idiotic, and Baker Mayfield, who had, like, real character flaws, right? But we don't normally see this with quarterbacks entering their second year. Burrow takes a step forward. Herbert takes a step forward. This is what we ordinarily see, and we didn't see that with Max so far this season. And I have to imagine he has to look at Josh McDaniels this week and think, man, what would we be like if I still had Josh? You look at the success rate of the Patriots offense this year, and that just means on first down, you're picking up 40% of the yards to go, 60% on second down, and on third or fourth down, you're picking up the first down. The Patriots this year are at 41.8%, which is 26 in the NFL. The teams behind them, the Colts, the Rams, the Jets, the Panthers, the Texans, and the Broncos. So all terrible teams in terms of their offense. You look at 2021 with Josh McDaniels and Mac Jones, the Patriots are at 48.6% as it pertains to that success rate. That was fourth in the NFL. The teams in front of them, the Chiefs, the Bucks, and the Packers, the best teams in terms of the offense last year. The Chiefs, Tom was great. And of course, the Packers with Aaron Rodgers, who won the MVP, the top two guys for the MVP, Pat Mahomes. And then it was the Patriots. Those are the only teams in front of the Patriots last year in terms of success rate. And the personnel, for the most part, is the same. And you look at the offense, it's actually getting worse as this season goes on. So getting back to that success rate, since week seven, the Patriots are the worst team in the NFL as it pertains to success rate, 37.7%. Their dropback success rate, 39.6%, that is 30th. Their rush success rate is 34%, which is 30th in the NFL. So <laughs> the Patriots are actually getting worse. I didn't think it was possible, but Matt Patricia is actually getting worse at his job. And you think about the red zone. With the Patriots this year, in terms of their touchdown percentage in the red zone, they are dead last in the NFL, 38.9%. Last year, they were at 63.1%, which was seventh in the NFL. What's the biggest difference? The play caller, Josh McDaniels, and I criticized him at times last year, but he can get creative when you get down there. Matt Patricia can't. So if I'm thinking about this, and I know a lot of you are thinking about the red zone issues this year, don't you think the quarterback is? Like, man, this is what we're doing on first and goal? This is what we're doing on second and goal? Well, Josh would have done it this way, or Josh would have had this wrinkle in the playbook. Josh would have designed this. He has to be thinking about this constantly. He's not getting helped by the play caller. How about first down? That's a big one, right? Because all these numbers, the third down numbers we reference, it's all because of what's happening on first down. They're not getting ahead of the chains. The Patriots on first down this year, 38.7% success rate, 25th in the NFL. Last year, that number was at 46.5%, which was fourth in the NFL. So they were always playing ahead of the chains last year. This year, they're not. And forget about it from a run perspective, 33.9% in terms of their rush success rate on first down, 24th. Last year, that was at 40.5%, which was fifth in the NFL. 
the problem is, and the Patriots have great running backs, and Ramondre Stevenson, we'll see what happens on Sunday with the banged-up ankle, but he's one of the better running backs in the NFL, and I know you have some offensive line issues, but what Josh McDaniels was able to do is hide some of the issues the Patriots had in the offensive line last season and be more creative with the running game. We know what's coming when the Patriots run. They're very obvious plays, and with Josh McDaniels, as much as he had his issues he was actually creative as a play caller. He was getting helped on first down last year, Mac was. So that's why these numbers on second and third down are bad, because on first down, Mac Jones is not getting helped by the play caller whatsoever. So look, we've bitched about the offense all season long. How do you think Mac feels? And this has got to be a reminder this week, knowing that he's playing Josh McDaniels, where he's like, oh yeah, I remember what Josh, remember how easy my life was last year? And then I looked at this in terms of the Patriots. You look at their leading receivers by week. Myers, Aguilar, Parker, Aguilar, Myers, Parker, Parker, Stevenson, Henry, Stevenson, Parker, Jones, Henry. So the reason I reference that is the guy that leads the Patriots in terms of receive, leading in a game, how many games he's done it, it's Parker with four. Four games, Parker's led this team in receiving yards. That's the most on the Patriots. You think across the league, Diggs has led the Bills in receiving yards, per, uh, receiving yards in eight of 13 games. Kelsey has led the Chiefs in receiving yards in 7 of 13 games. Jefferson has led the Vikings in receiving yards in 10 of 13 games. Hill has led the Dolphins in receiving yards in 10 of 13 games. Parker leads the Patriots with four. So Mac, right now, he doesn't have that bailout guy. He doesn't have the guy that the defenses have to account for. He needs a star. And think about this. His old friend, Josh McDaniels, who did he trade for? Devontae Adams in the offseason. And look, we can criticize the Raiders, and I will in a little bit, but just think about that. That's what Josh was thinking. Hey, my quarterback in Derek Carr, he's good, but he's not in that elite great territory, right? He's not in the family photo of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, but he's pretty good. And I think if I get him the best receiver in the NFL, he's going to get even better. So that was Josh's thought process this offseason. A limited quarterback in some capacity, I need to help him. And yeah, I can help him schematically, but I also need to help him in terms of the personnel, even though we already have Darren Waller, even though we already have Hunter Renfro, I need to get him an elite star. That's Devontae Adams. So if you're Mac, you're sitting here like, oh, Josh wanted an elite receiver. Yeah, I'd like one of those too. So this whole thing with Mac and Josh this week, it's got to be interesting from Mac's perspective. And the other thing I'd mention too, is just in terms of the play calling getting worse. I referenced that with Matt Patricia. As the season has gone on, it's actually not getting better whatsoever. In fact, it's going in the other direction. You look at that game last week. Mac threw screens on 12 of his 37 dropbacks. Okay, so 12 of his 37 dropbacks were screens. That's 32.4% of his dropbacks were screens. Aaron Rodgers leads the league at 18.4%. Mac was at 32.4% on Monday Night Football. Okay, just inexcusable. So the Cardinals came into the night with the third highest blitz rate on Monday Night Football. So maybe the thought process was, hey, the screen game's going to be effective. We can catch them because they're going to blitz so much. So Mac was blitzed on 12 dropbacks in that game. He was 5 for 12. That's 41.7%. Zero touchdowns. The interception, of course, came on a blitz. So 5.1 yards per attempt and a 23.3 rating. So if you were trying to help Mac with the blitz, it didn't help whatsoever. In fact, Mac got intercepted when Hunter Henry was blocking a guy that outweighed him by 20 pounds. And then you just look at the screen passes in this game, 4.8 yards per attempt. So they didn't move the ball at all when they were running these screen passes. And then 13 of his passes were behind the line of scrimmage the other night. 
So you're passing the ball behind the line of scrimmage. You're trying to use all these screens. They weren't effective. They didn't help Mac against the blitz whatsoever. He still sucked against the blitz. And then the play action, you only had four play action attempts because the Patriots don't believe the offensive line can hold up. And the issue there is, and by the way, the interception came out of play action where you're asking Hunter Henry to block a DN for eternity. So the game plan, when you looked at the opponent, the game plan sucked. You can say Josh McDaniels, sometimes he tried to get too cute, but he always had a game plan. He was always game plan specific. You think back to the Brady era too. Hey, the Colts, they can't stop the run. We're just going to run it down their throat. He was very creative. Hey, we're down 14 points against the Baltimore Ravens in a playoff game. You know what? This is the time for the double pass. He always had a feel for how the game was going. And Matt Patricia, this was one of the worst game plans you can imagine. I mean, how do you dial up 13 screen passes? Or I should say, how do you dial up 12 screen passes in a game? I mean, it's just inexcusable, especially considering it wasn't working. Why did you keep going to it? It's just unbelievable to me. And here's the reality. One of the things the Patriots had last year with Josh, they had a play action pass game. If you look at it last year, he was at 26.8% was Mac. It was Mac in terms of his drop back rate at a play action. That was 15th of the NFL. This year, he's down to 16.4%, which is 37th out of 39. And they don't get there because they don't trust the guys. And that comes back to the scheme that they can't execute it. Mac last year, in terms of his play action pass game, 100.1 rating. He completed 70.7% of his passes. Like Mac was really good out of the play action. And now that club has been taken out of the bag because the personnel is not great from an offensive line perspective, but secondarily because the guy calling the place can't figure out a way to get back to that. So again, I come back to Mac Jones and think to myself, yeah, he probably misses Josh. He probably misses the fact that Josh McDaniels would find a way to use some of the stuff that Mac Jones was good at. And even me last year, I criticized Josh. He could have dug into it more, but he was at 26.4%. This year, he's in the 16% area. I mean, it's just not nearly good enough for a guy that is a good play action passer. All right. So I did want to get to the Josh angle in all this. Josh McDaniels has got to be feeling like even though his team's struggling, he made the right decision. So first and foremost, remember, the Raiders gave Gruden 10 for 100, and of course they fired him. They still owe him $40 million. The LA Times already reported this year that McDaniels is going to be back because the Raiders don't have the dough. They can't fire Josh McDaniels. They don't have the money. So he made the right decision because he knows he has job security there. And then you think about this. This must have also, in a weird way to me, felt like when Cora was... In 2021, with this team that was two wins away from getting to the World Series, and then Heim traded Renfro and Schwarber walked away, that must be like what Max feeling like. Like, hold on. Like, they didn't really remember. We talked with Tommy Kern before the season. He said they didn't really try to keep Josh McDaniels this time. Max got to be like, what the hell? You're letting this guy go. And it's the same thing that the Red Sox did, right? There wasn't a replacement. When they let Renfro go, they didn't have an everyday outfielder in terms of a right fielder. They started playing Jackie Bradley Jr. there. He's not an everyday outfielder. It's the same thing with the play caller position with the Patriots. You don't have an NFL offensive play caller. You don't have one. I mean, you have Matt Patricia. He's never done it. Your answer for Josh McDaniels, who I continue to come back to this, Bill Belichick compared to Nick Saban last season. He compared him to Nick Saban. So if you think that Nick Saban is a pretty damn good football coach, you must think McDaniels is. And your answer is, you know what? Matty P. Matt Patricia is going to be the guy to replace him. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable to me. And there are some similarities there to what Hein Bloom did to Alex Cora. And that's what Bill did to Mac Jones. And then you think about Josh. Look, maybe he doesn't turn out to be a great head coach. He hasn't so far. 
His team has now blown four double-digit halftime leads, the most in the NFL. He's 16-25, and 25, a 390 winning percentage. And I've been irritated at times when he was with the Patriots, but I respected him enough to realize like he's competent at his job. And Bill, in this particular situation, has gone with a guy that's completely incompetent. Here is my wild idea, though, for the Patriots, okay? Because I think Josh made the right decision. I think Bill made the wrong decision, obviously, to have Matt Patricia become the play caller. Here's what I think should happen for the rest of the season. How many times have we heard Bill say, hey, we do what's in the best interest of the football team? Countless times over the years, right? Well, is Matt Patricia being the play caller what's in the best interest of the football team? No. Bill Belichick is considered to be the smartest guy in the history of the NFL, the best coach in the history of the NFL. This is who I want calling plays the rest of the year. Bill fucked this shit up, okay? Bill fucked up the play calling thing from the beginning of the season. So enough's enough. You made this mess. You clean it up. I want Belichick to take over as the play caller for the rest of the season. He has to be better than Matt Patricia. How could he not be better than Matt Patricia? That's what I want to see for the rest of the season. Can you imagine, though, too, that like if Bill turned the offense around, the, how much credit he would get? Like as badly as he messed it up at the beginning of the season with Patricia, how much credit he would get for Mac Jones and this offense turning things around. It'd be a great storyline, too. I would do it. I would love to see this happen. All right. Let me get to the greatest Boston bet of the week. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel. I like the Patriots to win. As much as I've criticized them, I like them to win. They're one-point dogs on the road. They're the more desperate team. You look at it right now. The Raiders really blew their season a week ago Thursday when they had an all-out blitz with Baker Mayfield. Even Baker Mayfield, who had just gotten to the Rams, was joking about it after the game. They blew it there. They're 5-8. and eight. They're not getting into the postseason. So I feel like the Patriots are going to come out where they've been criticized for basically the entire season. They've been together all week. I'm not underplaying under any of that. I like the fact that they've been in Arizona. It's not like they were going to come back after Monday Night Football, but sort of a come-to-Jesus moment for this team in terms of the offense. And you look at the Raiders' defense, 47.5% success rate, 28th of the NFL, points per game, 24th. Score rate, so teams are scoring on 40% of their drives against the Raiders. That's 23rd. They're 31st in Football Outsiders metric DVOA. And you look through the board, their passing defense is atrocious. Dropback success rate is 29th. Pressure rate is 25th. They don't get to the quarterback whatsoever. 25 sacks, which is 25th. Completion percentage, again, 69.7%. That's 32nd, so dead last. 103.4 passer rating against, also dead last. And football outsiders metric, DVOA and pass defense, they're 32nd. And you're only really worried about Max Crosby defensively. 34 pressures, third in the NFL. He's a great player. 11 and a half sacks, fifth. 19 tackles for loss, which is first. But Chandler Jones has quietly not been great there. Four and a half sacks, tied for 64th. And his win rate, Pro Football Focus, documents that. He's at 13.3%, which is 64th among edge players. Chandler is not at a good year. So that's the one guy you have to worry about. And you look at it, I understand Stevenson's banged up, but... One of the things I'm hoping for against a really bad defense, the Patriots take advantage of something they really haven't all season long, and that's their starting field position. They're number one in the NFL in starting field position at the 31.6 yard line. That's what they made. They're number one in the league, and they haven't taken advantage of it. This is the team to do it against. And by the way, I will give the Patriots credit if they shut down Adams because Carr is a good enough quarterback where you say, hey, they actually took away a number one ep- weapon. Adams coming into this game. yards per game, third of the NFL, 15.2 per reception, that's 11th, 142 targets tied for first. You know they're going to him, okay? They're going to him all night long. So this is a game where I will say if they shut him down, hey, the Patriots finally took out a number one weapon. I didn't give him credit for Hopkins just because it was Colt McCoy. It wasn't 
Murray. Okay, my prediction, by the way, because we don't know about Myers. We don't know about Parker. How about this? Huge, huge, huge Kendrick Bourne game. Okay, season high is 58 yards. He had 47 last week on five targets, and he caught all five of those targets. Kendrick Bourne was really good in that game, like low-key, under the radar. He played well. So I'm looking for a huge Kendrick Bourne game, and it's going to be like, I'm going to go back to the beginning of the season where I said, hey, breakout year for Kendrick Bourne. It's coming. Sunday, Kendrick Bourne, huge game. Put it down. All right. I do want to get to the Red Sox coming up next because they've done some stuff over the past few days, which have kind of irked me. All right, let me jump right into the Red Sox now. So Carlos Rodon has signed with the New York Yankees. I've been wanting this guy for two years. This is my nightmare. Carlos Rodon is now a member of the New York Yankees. Six for 162. So look, I get that we've been burned as Red Sox fans signing these pitchers, whether it be Chris Sale, whether it be David Price. But you look at Rodon last year, war 6.2, second among starters, 33.4% strikeout rate first, 198 expected batting average second. This guy is so damn good. And the Red Sox were not really involved in this whatsoever. And I go back to last year's when they should have made this move. You're coming off a World Series. You need a high upside play. And I understand that he had had injury issues in the past. This is when you should have signed him. Last year, he got two for 44. Then he gets in there. You get a good look at his medicals. And during the season, you could try to extend the guy. Or after the season, after he has a year with you in Boston, he says, hey, I want to be here. This is a great organization. Well, it was before Heim Bloom got here. And you decide, hey, maybe I want to stick around. But the Red Sox didn't go after him last year. That's what really irked me. And you look at all these teams, the Mets signed Verlander after Scherzer in back-to-back years. I get it. They lost out on DeGrom. He left to go to Texas, but you got Verlander. The Yankees go out. They got Radon to go with Nestor Cortez and, of course, Garrett Cole. The Blue Jays signed Gosman last year. They already had Manoa, who's an absolute stud. And then they signed Chris Bassett. The Red Sox are just sitting here. These teams are really going for it. And then I was also reminded of something today that the Red Sox screwed up as well, the Mookie Betts trade. Not that anybody's surprised by that, but... You look at this whole idea, long-term sustainability. Mookie's gone. Xander's gone. That's why the Red Sox aren't signing these big deals, right? They want long-term sustainability. What's it doing for you, right? You think about today, one of the guys that was involved in the Mookie trade, talk about long-term stability, Cheater Downs. Yeah, talk about long-term. This guy's been DFA'd. DFA'd by the Red Sox. A guy that was one of the main pieces in the Mookie trade, along with Verdugo and Connor Wong. He struck out 21 times in 41 plate appearances at the major league level. That's 51.2%. Worst qualified hitter this year was Patrick Wisdom of the Cubs at 34.3%. This dude was at 51.2%. Franchi was at 33.5%. And Bobby Dahlbeck was at 33.4%. He was at 51.2%. And then if you look at his infield fly ball rate, because Heim Bloom, he loves launch angle. He's obsessed with launch angle. His infield fly ball rate in AAA this year was 40%. So 40, think about that. 40% of his batted balls were infield fly balls. Randy Arozarena had the highest infield fly ball rate in Major League Baseball at 19%. This guy was at 40% in AAA. That is atrocious. But hey, big launch angle. Would have ranked 25th in Major League Baseball this year. I think that's, he, that's why he loves Story. Don't worry about the strikeouts. 30.8% last year for Story. But hey, he's got a 17.8 launch angle. So that'll work out long term. Yep. And by the way, a small thing on Story. I was just looking at this. You realize he hit 300 against changeups, and he slugged 725. 
Fastballs, he hit 246 and slugged 406. I'm convinced that he just thought those were fastballs. Like his bat speed was so bad last year. His timing was so off with his launch angle that he actually thought that he was hitting fastballs and they were actually changeups. Anyway, the Mookie trade. So getting to this downs thing, Mookie since the trade, his wins above replacement, 13.2. The return for Mookie, Verdugo, Downs, and Wong, 5.1. So that difference is 8.1. And if you look at it, that's basically like Teoscar Hernandez in that time. That's basically his war since then. So if you're not a big war guy, let me tell you the caliber of player that is the difference between what you gave up in Mookie and what you got back. So Teoscar Hernandez, 283 over the past three years. That's 20th in baseball. That's better than Rafi, and that's better than Carlos Correa, who just got, what, $350 million, whatever it was, to go to San Francisco. Okay, his slugging percentage since 2020, 519. That's 13th. It's better than Juan Soto, Austin Riley, Nolan Arenado, and Kyle Tucker. His OPS, 852, 19th. That's in front of El Tuve. 73 bombs, 15th in baseball. More than Goldschmidt, Bryce Harper, Freddie Freeman, Jose El Tuve, Kyle Tucker, and Nolan Arenado. So that just tells you uh, the quality of the player that is the difference between what Mookie was going out and what you got back. 8.1 wins above replacement. Unbelievably bad how this trade was executed. You got nothing. You got nothing. Verdugo had a bad year. Verdugo was out of shape last year. Verdugo's defense slipped. You got nothing out of this trade. You got to hope Wong is something, but what's he really going to be? And now we're hearing the Red Sox could be in on Dansby Swanson. He's by far the fourth out of that four group or that group of four in terms of the shortstops. OPS was 776, six out of 21 qualifiers at the shortstop position. Not great. He strikes out a ton, 26.1%, 19th out of 21 shortstops. He did hit 25 bombs, which is a good thing fourth. Now, he is a good defender, 21 outs above average, stat cast metric. That's first by eight runs of any shortstop. So that's the good thing. But entering his 29-year-old season, Braves have already committed to a ton of guys. The Acunas, they signed Harris early, right? They traded for Olsen last offseason. If they really think that Swanson is somebody they can't lose. He'd already be signed. The Braves ordinarily sign all their players, and for some reason, they haven't signed Swanson. To me, this would feel like more of a panic move if they signed Swanson, because he's not close to those other guys. Now, it would be very similar to the Story thing, where Story got a way lower contract than he would have expected, because he was dealing with injuries, different situation. But you may look at Swanson. He's not going to get the contract that Turner or Bogarts or, of course, Carlos Correa got. But to me, this just feels like if you go after Swanson, that's sort of a panicky thing. Yeah, he's a good defender, but he's really not a great offensive player whatsoever. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in. 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. We're going to be back with you Sunday after the Patriots and the Raiders. Of course, James White will be with us as well. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. 